Beautiful, beautiful. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. You know, I love preaching expository. Let me tell you what that is. There are two main ways to preach that is called topical and expository. Topical is what the name implies. The pastor would preach a topic that he feels this church needs, uh, something they're going through, something he thinks they're going to go through. And so he'll preach it. He'll, he'll choose a topic. He'll find scripture and preach on that topic. A lot of men do that. I used to preach that way. It's not unbiblical to preach in that way. Uh, but then I, I transitioned some years ago to what is called expository preaching. Expository is choosing a book and preaching through the book. A lot of advantages to expository preaching. One of them is going to be played out today. When you do topical preaching, inevitably someone in the congregation is going to say, I know why you chose that topic. It was because of me, right? And, and sometimes it would be true. So then the pastor has to like, well, you know, we all need it, brother. Yeah, but you know you, you chose it for me, right? And so then there's a, there can be an, an awkwardness there. Uh, sometimes pastors preach topical messages based off of an experience they just had with a member that's really no one's business, and now they're preaching a whole message on it. So that's not good. Expository is you can't blame me for what I'm preaching because I'm just preaching through the Bible. If I happen to preach you something that affects you deeper because of what happened yesterday, it's not because I know what happened yesterday. If I happen to preach something and you say, wait a second, we had a conversation that's similar to that last week. I'm not preaching this because of the conversation. They just happen to be around the same time. I am just going through the scripture. I'm preaching through the Bible. And so the title of this morning's message is Turning from Sin. And, you know, I I also really enjoy expository preaching because I am not going to be heavy on one particular topic because I think it may be preached on more. I'm going to preach on the Word of God, and as often as God deals with that topic in a book, I will preach on that topic, and we'll continue on to the next book, and if God repeats a particular topic, I will have another message on that topic. So I will preach the truth and repeat those truths only as often as God does. Instead of me, I've been in some churches, I'm sure you have as well, where every Sunday giving is brought up, right? In some form or fashion, if it's not the main thrust of the message, giving. Oh, here we go, preaching on giving again. Every Sunday, um, you know, tithing, it could be. Every Sunday, church attendance is brought up. Every Sunday, uh, a particular issue that is important to that pastor is preached on every single Sunday. There is so much more to the Christian life than these two or three main things that guys like to preach on. And uh, that's what our hope is to cover these. So today, though, we are going to be touching on a topic that is a common one, and that is sin, and that is repentance. And I'm preaching on it because that's where we find ourselves in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Let's pick up. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, this selfsame thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, fear, vehement desire, zeal, revenge, in all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that had suffered the wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Ah, oh, that, that may not be 
like a key verse. You're probably thinking, oh, yeah, you know, verse 10 is the key verse. Well, I guess it depends on what you're going through. Verse 10 is a great verse. I got to tell you, though, for me as a pastor, uh, where I'm coming from, I feel like verse 12 is the key verse right here. Pastor Russ, how could verse 12 be the key verse? Because the Apostle Paul says, I corrected you. Now, let's, let's review what's going on here. This is the second book written to the Corinthian church. In the first book, the Apostle Paul had to correct the Corinthian church on a variety of issues. One really big issue, there was immorality. There was a man and a woman sleeping together who were not married, and to make matters worse, the woman was the young man's mother-in-law. So she, the, the, his father had remarried this woman, and the young man and this woman are, are hanging out together in ways they should not, all right? So that's pretty bad. That's what it's talking about in verse 12. That's not why it's the key verse for me. But when he says, I didn't write 1 Corinthians to attack the young man. I mean, obviously, the young man was wrong. Needed to be dealt with. That wasn't the purpose for 1 Corinthians. It wasn't to put this man in his place. He said, I didn't write the book of 1 Corinthians to vindicate the father, the one who was being wronged. I mean, the dad, the husband, and the dad, same guy, was the one being wronged. He said, I didn't write it to, 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 you know, have this, let this guy have some form of revenge, you know, theological revenge. <laughs> he says that wasn't the purpose. It wasn't for the victim, and it wasn't for the abuser. He said, I wrote it for you. He said, you were the ones who were standing back and saying, nothing to see here. We're not going to address this issue here. Uh, everyone knew about it. It, it, it. it had become such a big problem. It was being gossiped about. City, multiple cities over. The Apostle Paul heard about it, and he wasn't even in Corinth. Don't tell me the church didn't know. The church knew. How did they know? Probably because the husband knew, and he probably told people, hey, can you please help me with this? My wife and my son uh, are, ha- are having issues. Can someone help me? And the church is like, ah, you know, we, we don't really want to mess with that. You know, if we do, it just causes a problem. People get upset. Church splits. You know, those are, those are really nasty. No one wants a church split. The church knew, and the church did nothing. The Apostle Paul in verse 12 says, I wrote that book to correct you. You needed the correction. Well, we weren't the ones doing the wrong. No, you were the ones letting the wrong be done. Well, we weren't the the victims. We didn't need to be vindicated. No, you allowed a victim to continue being abused. Church, don't tell me that your hands are clean because you didn't nail Christ to the cross. When we do nothing to, to right the wrongs that are being done in our church, to right the wrongs that are being done in our family, you may not be part of the problem. If you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. So the Apostle Paul said, I wrote it to you. Why? Ultimately, because I love you. He said, I care for you, and I wanted my care over your souls to be evidenced in that letter. So that's another great truth. So many things, and just I could preach all day on just verse 12. I'm not. But he's basically saying, the way I showed you my love was by not letting you self-destruct. The way I proved my love was by correcting you. That's how I showed my love. Parents, you think the best way you can show your love to your kids is let them run free, you know, and do whatever they want. That is not the best way. The book of Proverbs says the opposite. The book of Proverbs in the Old Testament says if you love your child, you will correct them. It says if you don't, you hate them. 
The Apostle Paul loves this church like children, and he says, it is my responsibility to correct you. Hey, you may pretend nothing's going on. You may pretend everything's okay. The Apostle Paul said, I don't have that good of an imagination. I can't do that. I can't pretend everything's okay. So I'm writing this letter to you. You know what the great thing is? In writing this letter, the church did respond. They did what was right. They dealt with the issue. And the great ending is that young man repented, got right with God. And in the book of 2 Corinthians, it talks about how that young man made an effort to do what was right. The apostle Paul didn't write the book so the young man would repent. That was a hope, but not the goal. It happened anyways. The goal was to help the church recognize you're not on the sidelines. You're in the game. You're not sitting on the bench. You're playing. And you cannot, in the middle of the game, go sit down and say, I'm tired. Because you're going to lose. Because the referee's not stopping the game. The other team will keep playing, and they will win. Do you want Satan to win? I sure don't. Now, look, Satan doesn't win. We know that, right? God wins. Satan can win some battles along the way. I mean, we know God wins the war. Do you want Satan to win any battles here? No, I do not. So we cannot pretend we're on the sidelines. We must stand up for truth and not just claim that we love truth, but live it and teach it. And when it comes to this church, Meriden Hills, we cannot ignore those who are openly, publicly stepping on truth, stomping on truth, and pretending it's okay. That's verse 12. Now, turning from sin, I see three points this morning. Change of direction, change of heart, and change of impact. Let's go to verse 10 and take a look at this change of direction. For godly sorrow worketh uh, worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. What does that mean? Kind of confusing, right? Well, it's saying that if you have true repentance, godly sorrow, true repentance, you won't repent of repentance. Okay, well, what's repentance? Godly sorrow or repentance is the idea of that was wrong, I'm going to churn away. I'm going to change. I'm going to go a different direction. I'm going to do something different. All right. So if you say, you know what, I shouldn't be doing this. This is wrong. Sin is hurting me. Sin is hurting my family. Sin is hurting my friends, whatever that sin may be. This particular text is not dealing with a specific sin, so neither will I today. I'm not going to turn this text into a preaching on a particular sin. I feel like this is going to happen. I'm going to preach on sin, and the Holy Spirit will tell you which sin he wants you to think of today. I don't need to tell you that. So whatever that sin is, if you say, you know what, this sin is destroying me, it is hurting me, I'm going to turn away from it, I'm going to repent of it. God says if you have godly sorrow, you're not going to say, oops, I'm going to repent of my repentance, which is what? Turning back this direction. (laughs) So you're not going to be sorry that you are sorrowful of sin. You're not going to repent or turn away having turned away from sin. I'm not saying that if you turn from sin, you'll be perfect. I'm not saying if you stop sinning, you'll never start sinning again. I am saying that godly sorrow will not bring regret. Let me just put it this way, letter A. Guilt is not a guarantee for change. That is true. Guilt is not a guarantee for change. So just because you are feeling bad about something doesn't mean you are going to change it. How many times have you had a conversation with your child and they, did you do wrong? Mm-hmm. You going to do that again? Mm-mm. And the next day, they're doing it again. Sometimes that very morning, why did you hit your brother? I don't know. Should you hit your brother? No. They leave. Three minutes later, the brother's crying again. Why? They just got hit again by the very same child you just corrected, right? That happens. That's not godly sorrow. 
That is worldly sorrow. That is, I feel bad about it, but not enough to do something about it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, you know, I do feel some guilt, but I'm not going to change. Christians, what does that mean for you? It means you need to stop being so naive. You need to stop taking people at their word and look at what they do. And stop letting your emotions be so easily swayed by someone's tears. Oh, I'm so sorry. I am so sorry. I will never do that again. Well, look, what you did was pretty severe. It hurt me pretty bad. I hope you'll never do it again. But you're, I'm not giving you back the trust you just stole from me. You got to earn it back. And I hope that what you say is true. But that's on you, not on me. Too many Christians, you think that love is freely giving trust. And you think, if I love you, I will trust you. Someone lied to you. That's not in the Bible. I, I challenge you, look in the Bible. You will not find it, but I'll challenge you anyways. Look in the Bible and show yourself, show me, where the Bible says, if you love someone, you have to trust them. It does not exist. You do not have to trust anyone but Christ. No one deserves your trust unearned. No one, dare I say it, including your children. Hey, just because your kids uh, are part, uh, came from your body in some form or fashion doesn't mean you give them trust freely. In fact, I will tell you this. I expect more of my kids, not less. My kids have more opportunity to earn my trust, but my kids need more opportunity to earn my trust because they're my kids, and I hold them to a higher level. My kids don't get a free ride. That's not because I'm mean. It's because I want my children to understand that trust doesn't come free. Because when you teach a child that, you are setting them up for a fall, a big one. Because your child, who thinks that, well, you should trust me because I'm your child, will say to their spouse, you should, you should trust me because what? I'm your husband, I'm your wife. They're going to take that mindset into their marriage, and it will destroy their marriage. And their spouse is going to say, you haven't earned my trust. You keep breaking my trust. Well, you should just trust me again because we're married. You should just trust me again because we're married. Well, who taught them that? Their parents taught them that. You are teaching them that. You are teaching them that though, no matter how many times they mess up, you just keep trusting them. Oh, oh, you were on your phone at 1 a.m. talking to random strangers. Oh, I'm, I'm glad you're sorry. Here's your phone back again. And they just keep doing it. What are you doing, parents? Oh, I'm going to take your Xbox, you know, one and put it in my room. And when you're gone, they're going to go find it and plug it in. And you come home and you're like, eyes wide open. What are you doing? Nothing. We are surely doing something. I know where that was and I see where it is now. You had to go in my room, search through my stuff, take it back here, plug it in, and now you want to pretend nothing's going on? Okay, but I trust you again. What are you talking about? You trust them less after that, not more. If your children do not understand that trust should be earned, they will destroy their marriage. They will destroy their friends. They will destroy their workplace because they will just assume everyone must trust them because, come on, it's me. Now, here's the real issue. We trust easily because we are easily swayed by tears. We're easily swayed by, I'm sorry. That's good that they say they're sorry. You need to forgive them. By the way, whether they're sorry or not, you owe them forgiveness. I will say that. <laughs> you do owe them forgiveness, not because of what they've done, but because of what he's done. Because of what God has done, you owe everyone forgiveness. You do not owe anyone trust. So you can love them and not trust them. 
but I don't know that it's possible to love them and not forgive them. So forgiveness is attached to love. Trust obviously helps you love them better. Uh, Trust will enhance a loving relationship. It's not required to love someone. You owe them forgiveness and keep forgiving them over and over and over again. But forgiveness does not mean there are no consequences. Forgiveness means, all right, all right, you know what? You've wronged me. You've hurt me. I will forgive you and allow you the opportunity to make it right. I will forgive you. Uh, You're going to be corrected to teach you, but I will forgive you. I will not correct you out of anger because I've forgiven you. I will correct you out of love. Forgiveness does not mean no punishment, does not mean no consequence. It means no vengeance. So whatever discipline you enact on your your child, whatever, whatever needs to be done in your marriage, you are now doing out of love and out of necessity for them because you forgave them. Because if you didn't forgive them, you might actually be doing the exact same thing, but for the wrong reason. And now you're disciplining them because you're angry, some, some sense of vengeance, and it's this, it looks the same to any untrained eye, but your child sees anger in your eyes. And so now the correction is not helping them, it's hurting them, it becomes abuse because there's no forgiveness attached to it. Okay, so forgiveness doesn't eliminate correction, it, it eliminates the vengeance attached to the correction. You following me? But just because you forgave them doesn't mean you trust them. They have to earn that back. So, worldly sorrow, verse 10. The sorrow of the world works death. If you teach your child that worldly sorrow works, if you, if you in some way convince your spouse that worldly sorrow works, if you are convinced yourself that worldly sorrow works, wow, every time I cry like that makes everything better, they forgive me, they trust me, and I get everything back. That's worldly sorrow. And if anyone in your life, including you, believe that works, you will keep doing it. They will keep doing it. The child will keep crying to get what they want. The spouse will keep crying to get what they want. You will keep crying to get what you want. And you will only achieve worldly sorrow. That is an emotional guilt, an emotional regret that does not result in change. And you'll keep doing that because change isn't necessary because every time you cry, every time you say you're sorry, everyone trusts you again. But what's the end result for you? Verse 10, death. Death is destruction. Death is separation. Doesn't mean necessarily literal death. Doesn't mean you'll die next time you have worldly sorrow. But it means you'll, you'll be the living dead. You'll live a life of death. You'll bring death with you into your marriage. You'll kill your marriage. You'll kill your kid's emotional uh, stability. You'll kill your kid's mental health. You will bring death into your relationships because someone along the way convinced you that worldly sorrow works. And it does for the naive. And you've surrounded yourself with naive people and you bring death into their relationships. Deep, right? Let's go to letter B. That's only letter A. Letter B, change is not a guarantee for success. So let's talk about godly sorrow. Godly sorrow means I will repent. I will turn away. I will not repent of my repenting. I will not turn away just to turn back again. That's that's worldly sorrow. I will recognize this is harmful. This is wrong. This is hurtful. This is destructive. It brings death. I'm walking away from it. Godly sorrow. I will change. That doesn't guarantee success because here's the thing i said you will change but what direction are you changing to right change itself is not enough what does the change look like oh honey i am so sorry you know 
I've, uh, I've, I've been flirting with the girls at work. I'm sorry. I shouldn't be doing that. You know, I'm going to change. I'm going to change. I will never flirt with that girl again. And so the guy changes only to run headlong into a completely different issue. Maybe it's not even dealing with immorality. Maybe women are not involved. So, but, but now he's chosen another sin to, 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 to bury himself in, right? So he has changed. He stops flirting. Uh, women are no longer a problem in, in that sense. But there's now, it's been replaced with another problem. So just because someone's changed doesn't mean everything's going to be okay. What are they changing to? Who are they changing toward? Godly sorrow implies very strongly, I believe, not only change, but change towards God. Godly sorrow, right? That it's not just I'm running from this sin to another sin. I'm running from this sin to God. I'm not just changing from this bad habit to another bad habit. I'm eliminating this bad habit and replacing it with God. Godly sorrow replaces sin with God not just change with something different. So don't be convinced that just because someone has changed and is doing something different that they're going to be successful. And then letter C, you can change for yourself, and a lot of people do. You know, I, uh, I'm going to start working out. I'm going to eat healthier for myself. I mean, I, I, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I, I, I'm not saying that's ungodly or wicked to, to, to make choices that help yourself. I'm just stating a fact. A lot of people change for themselves. You could change for others, and again, that's not a bad thing. There's a lot of things, my wife and I, over the, the years of our marriage, we have made adjustments for each other. That's not a bad thing. I think that that's, uh, that's kind of necessity, right? There has to be some adjustments for the people in your life. I'm just stating a fact that, that there are reasons to change, one for yourself, one for others, and the, finally the one for God. Now, when you change for yourself... You could be happy with the change, and you can regret the change. Because some changes you did for yourself, and you're like, man, I wish I didn't do that. that. That didn't end up being what I thought it was, and it didn't turn out the way I hoped it was. And I made the change for myself, but in the end, it hurt me, <laughs> right? Okay, you can change for others, and with fully sincere, good intentions. I love this person. I'm changing for them, and then they walk out of your life. They, they never see you again, and you think, I did all that change for them, and now they're gone. And there could be regret attached to that. Often there is regret attached to changing for someone who abandons you. I'm not saying it's wrong to change for yourself. I'm not saying it's wrong to change for others. I'm saying there is a high possibility of regret attached to those changes. Why? Because if you're changing for people, people are messed up, including you, and you can regret those changes. I'm telling you this very clearly, though. You will never, ever regret any change that you make for God. Those changes are only always good. Those changes only always bring success. And those changes will never end up with God walking away, ever. So if you want guaranteed success, change for God. By the way, in my personal opinion, the best change you can have for your spouse is to change for God. Your spouse will benefit the most when you change for God. Your kids will benefit the most when you change for God. You don't need to change for people nearly as much as you need to change for God. The minor changes for people, sure, the things that might annoy them, you can make some minor adjustments. The major changes for God will affect people in the best positive way. Okay, let's turn to number two now. So change of direction, uh, turning from sin. Let's go to number two, change of heart. Let's see what happens when you do have godly sorrow, when you do change your direction, when you say, 
this is not healthy, this is not good, I'm not just going to change for the sake of change, running into the arms of another, uh, another sin, another mistress, whether, whether it's a person or a thing, whatever that might be. I'm not going to change just you know, jumping from sin to sin, I'm going to change to God. What is the benefit of that? Well, there are so many benefits, but how does that look? Well, it results in a change of heart. And here's what we see in verse 11, the description of the changed heart of someone who changes for God toward God. So verse 11, for behold, the self-same thing that you sorrowed after, a godly sort. This is godly sorrow, godly repentance. What carefulness it wrought in you. All right, so now we have a list of things that were evidence that took place in the lives, plural, of the people, plural, who repented after reading 1 Corinthians. So we see letter A, godly sorrow results in consideration of our actions and a desire to be free of destruction. So look at verse 7. What carefulness, what clearing of yourselves. The desire of godly sorrow, the change of heart, goes from I want I want, it makes me happy, it fulfills me, I'm going to keep this. Uh, you know, what, if it, how could it be so wrong if it feels so good, right? All of that justification, all of those phrases, all of those things that you say turn from that to, you know what I really want? I just want to be clean. You know what I really want? I want to know that my actions are bringing about good and not evil. A godly, repentant, sorrowful heart stops thinking about themselves and starts thinking about others and starts saying, how can I be clean from my issues and considering my actions, how can they be a positive impact on others rather than the destruction I've been leaving in my path? That's godly sorrow. True repentance is not just a guilt, not just a, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. It is, you know what? How is this hurting my wife? Really thinking about it. Looking at your kids, seeing the pain in their eyes and saying, how is this affecting my children? And being brave enough to look in the mirror and saying, and you're looking in your own eyes, what is this doing to me? Who am I becoming with this habit, with this choice, with this attitude, with this sin that I've given myself over to? Who am I becoming? (laughs) You know what? I want to repent because... I want to be clean of this. And I want to start considering what my life is actually doing to and for people. That's godly repentance. If you don't see that in someone, they haven't repented. They've just regretted. And they're probably not going to change to God. They'll probably just change to something else, if at all. That's not the kind of person you trust. It's the kind of person you love. It's the kind of person you forgive. Because every person is that person. You don't trust that person. Letter B, godly sorrow results in a love for justice and a hatred of sin. Looking at verse 11 again. Yea, what indignation. (laughs) And then let's going to skip down here to yea, what revenge. And indignation is an intense feeling of, of spite or hatred. Now we know, the Bible doesn't clarify here, but we know that this indignation cannot be attached to people. How do we know that? Because Christ said to love everyone. So we cannot, in, in any way, can we believe that this uh, godly sorrow, God re- uh, godly repentance would ever result in a hatred for people. So there's only one other thing, in my opinion, left 
our indignation and our hatred for what? Not ourselves, because we're still people. For what? Sin. Godly repentance will result in a changed heart and how it views sin. Before godly repentance, you justify it. It's not that big of a deal. Everyone's doing it. It doesn't really hurt anyone. What I do in private, no one else needs to know, and no one else will know. So you don't hate sin. You embrace sin. You justify sin. You befriend sin. When you have true godly repentance, you have a hatred for sin that you never had before. So deep, so strong, it can be called indignation towards sin. Not only that, it says, yea, what revenge? What is revenge? Well, I know that we just said forgiveness does not include revenge, but in this context, I believe pretty strongly what we're talking about is justice here, that, that something would be done to, for the wrong, towards the wrong. Because wrong has been done, righteousness would be done. So justice. When you have godly sorrow, you have a strong desire to see justice done. And let her see, godly sorrow results in a renewed love for God and his church. Verse 11. Yea, what fear? Fear of what? Well, we're told we're only supposed to fear God, not to fear man. The Bible tells us do not fear man. Book of Proverbs says if you fear man, it will destroy you, it will snare you, it will trap you. So God is not saying to fear man. He warns us to not fear man. There's only one fear we should have, and that is God. So when you have godly sorrow, your fear of God will be renewed. And by the way, when you have a fear of God, you will reconnect with God. That, that relationship will be reconnected. So we have a renewed fear. And then what vehement desire. Vehement, strong, intense desire. Desire, and I believe relationally, towards God's people. Um, well, I've read a lot of commentaries on this and, and a lot agree with my belief that, that the Apostle Paul was basically stating, your desire towards me has increased. Your desire to do right by me, the Apostle Paul, the one that loves you. Your desire to right the wrongs you've had towards me has increased. I've seen that desire. And by the way, the reason I believe that, the reason others believe it, is verses 12 through 16, kind of play that desire out. He, he talks about how you, you, you want to reconnect with me. You want to do right by me. So, Christian, when you are living in sin, you don't want to be around God's people. That's just how it is. You'll tolerate God's people. You don't want to be around God's people. You will tolerate them to look good. You will tolerate them to have some form of religion in your life. You will tolerate them to convince others that you're not the person you know you are. You will tolerate them. You won't like it. When you're truly repentant and recognize your sin is destroying you, you will, believe it or not, actually enjoy God's people again. Even the ones that aren't that enjoyable, you'll be like, you know, it truly is good to see you. Really? Yeah. Can you believe it? You will enjoy being with God's people, and you will enjoy being with God. That is the change of heart. That is the result of godly repentance. When you recognize, I am done with this, I am turning to God. Not I'm done with this, turning to something new, something different. No, I'm done with this, turning to God, godly sorrow. This is what you get to benefit from. And then finally, change of impact. You see, when you turn from your sin to God, when your heart is changed, a change of heart where literally it, it changes the way you see things, changes the way you believe about things, it is inevitably going to result in a different impact on people. How people see you will change. 
The amount of trust they give you will change. How people feel when they're around you will change. Even what people believe will start to change, really. You know, I can't believe you're the same person I knew five years ago. Yeah, you're not good. You're not, you know, let me tell you what happened. God happened. God, what? God happened? Seriously? Yeah. Let me tell you about God. You know what? I'm actually interested because there's no other explanation for who you are today and who you were five years ago. So if, if your answer is God, I want to hear about that. And then, lo and behold, that person's getting saved and baptized months later. Their belief system was impacted by your repentance, by your change. No, no. You didn't change them. Your impact changed, and God used that impact to help them come to the realization they also need to change. Okay, number three, change of impact. Verse 12, wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did not for his cause that had done the wrong. I I taught a lot on verse 12 at the beginning of the message, so uh, let's just take a look here at letter A. Godly sorrow result, I'm sorry, letter A, number three. Our correction gains the most impact when done out of love for the one being corrected. All right. Did that young man who was fooling around with the woman he's not married to need to be corrected? Yes. Was the letter written to that young man? No. Could the Apostle Paul have written a letter to them, that young man? Yes, he could have. Did he? No, he did not. Why? That young man was not under the authority of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul went directly to the source, the authority of that young man, and said, I'm going to deal with you guys. (laughs) You know, as a principal, there's some times where I talk to the student at this school, things that they're struggling with, behavior, otherwise, whatever. There are times where I don't talk to the student. You know who I talk to? The parent. And I bring the parent in and say, hey, this is what's going on, and uh, it's time you stepped in. It's time that you did what you had to do to help your child succeed. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He's going directly to the authority over that young man, which was not him. And you know what I love about this? The Apostle Paul knew, I've got a letter, a very hard letter to write to an entire church of people. You've been a part of churches long enough. You've experienced people get upset in church and leave. You've experienced church splits. You've experienced pastors leaving and people leaving for the wrong reasons in anger. You've experienced all this. The Apostle Paul is not an idiot. He knew that his letter may result in that, and that is not what he wanted. So he had to ask himself, what's the best possible way I can show them their need for change and not destroy them in the process? So how did he do it? How did this man get an entire church, and I believe of hundreds if not thousands of people? I don't think the Corinthian church was small. From the historical facts, details about the, the city, that, that the implication there's only there was only one church at that time. There wasn't like 20 churches in a metropolitan area. One church, a lot of people. How did he get this entire church to recognize they were wrong? He did it by first reminding them. If you read the first book of Corinthians, you'll see throughout, he reminded them of how much he loved them. Through the correction, during the correction, in the correction, the Apostle Paul constantly reminded him, I love you. I'm your friend. I'm not here to hurt you. I want to help you. Now, here's the truth. Listen to this. Those words are not enough. That's not the magic saying. If you just say that to someone, I'm here to help you. Now, get, get right with God. I love you. Now, get right with God. That alone is not going to help them if they don't believe it. 
so, what do you, what needs to happen in your life for you to, when you say that, it will be believed? To show it before you have to say it. You know, here is the danger of correcting someone you do not know. You are more likely to turn them away from good. Because if you do not know them and you correct them, there's no way you can correct them in love. You don't know them. You could say, well, I love everyone. I have a general love for people. And they may even believe that. But it's not going to open up their hearts to you because there's not a personal connection of love between you and them. I almost never, I used to when I was young and stupid, I almost never anymore correct people I do not know. Oh, when I was young, I was correcting everyone because I thought it was my job. I I wasn't trying to be better than thou, holier than thou. I thought it's what God wanted. I would correct people in the store for swearing, literally. I was like in my 20s, and some guy was swearing. I'd say, can you please not swear around me? I mean, I don't know. That guy must have thought I was, you know, ridiculous. Like, what is wrong with you? I I did, obviously, right? It's It's stupid. But I really thought I should. I thought it was my job to, you know, truth corrects the wrong. You're not doing any good if there's no love attached. And just because you say you love someone doesn't mean there is love. So here's, here's the real truth. Love people first because you're almost guaranteed if they're alive, if they're breathing, there will come a day where they will need some, dare I say it, redirection. That includes you, by the way. All right, I love you. You're going to need some redirection. You love me. I will need redirection. We all need it. Don't wait for that day of redirection to start loving them. It's too late at that point. Love them first. And when that day comes where redirection is necessary, you will already be set up for success. And you will be able to have that hard conversation, and you are best set up to see success. I make an effort, a very strong effort, as a principal of Mid-State Christian Academy to show love to as many students as I can. It's getting harder with 200. It was a lot easier with 90. But I do make an effort to show as much love as I can to as many students because I'm just assuming that someday that student will be sitting in my office. Someday I will have a conversation with them, and I want them to already know Pastor Russ loves them before that conversation. You do that with the people in your life, like the Apostle Paul did with the Corinthian church, and you will see an entire church of people saying, what did we do? How could we have been so dumb? Paul, we are so sorry. It's not because Apostle Paul said he loved them. It's because he told them what they already knew. He loved them. And when he told them that and then said, but now you got to change, they were open to it. Letter B. When we turn from destruction, our greatest impact is on those who love us the most. Right? Sin destroys. Uh, Worldly sorrow, verse 10, brings death, destruction. You destroy yourself. You destroy all those that that you know and love dearly. The the irony of sin is your sin is going to hurt you and your close family members way more than it's going to hurt me. Your sin is going to even hurt your closer friends more than it's going to hurt me as a pastor. I'll be hurt by it. I'll be hurt for you. I'll keep going. You know who may not? Your kids. You know who may not? You know who may give up? Your spouse. You know who may walk away? Your friends. I'm not. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. Your sin will hurt those closest to you every time. And so the opposite is also true. When you turn from sin, 
the positive impact will be on your closest friends and family more than anyone else. I would, I'll be happy to see, oh, you know, I, I can see a change. I can see you're heading in a better direction. Brings a smile to my face, brings joy to my life. Your, your spouse will be in tears. Your kids will be walking on cloud nine. I, I won't. I'll be happy. I won't be that happy because it didn't impact me that much. The ones closest to you will feel the largest impact when you repent from sin. Look at verse 13. Therefore, we were comforted in your comfort, yea, and exceedingly the more joyed for the joy of Titus because his spirit was refreshed by you all. The Apostle Paul says your repentance brought so much joy to Titus and to me. Titus was the young man that the Apostle Paul sent to Corinth with the letter. And then Titus came back with the response of the Corinthian church, and Titus was like, man, it was revival over there. It was amazing. And Titus, big old smile. And as soon as the Apostle Paul that, saw that smile, I, I bet they were just laughing and hugging and slapping each other on the back. Oh, praise the Lord. And the Apostle Paul is now overjoyed. Not everyone who knew the Corinthian church was overjoyed to hear of their repentance. Some were probably pretty skeptical and say, ah, let's wait and see what happens, right? I mean, rightly so. That probably happened. Not the Apostle Paul. The man was so overjoyed with the repentance of his brothers and sisters in Christ because he was closest to them. And let her see, and we're done. When we give up the sins of our past, we gain the trust of others. Now, Titus did not know the Corinthian church on the same level that Paul knew them. He did not have the connection with them that Paul knew them. And it's interesting that Paul sent Titus. And and we're told he sent Titus because Paul literally said in his letter, he said, God made it clear to me it would not be good if I showed up. And here's what I think. I think because Paul knew he would say something he should not. That he knew if he was there, he would not treat them as well as if he wrote a letter and sent someone else who wasn't as connected with them. So in his wisdom, Paul was so upset, he said, you know what? I can't deal with you personally. I'm sending someone else to deal with you because I'm so mad at you. But I love you, but I'm mad. So the Apostle Paul didn't go himself because he was so close to the matter, he let someone else deal with it. A lot of wisdom right there, right? When you can, if someone else can take care of the problem who's not as close to the matter, didn't feel uh, as hurt about it, maybe they should take care of it and not you. So Titus, though, when he comes back, verse 14 For if I have boasted anything to him, Titus, of you, I am not ashamed. But as we speak all things to you in truth, even so our boasting which I made before Titus is found a truth. And his, Titus, his inward affection is more abundant toward you whilst he remembered the obedience of you all. Now you you can read verse 16 on your own talking about his rejoicing and his confidence. But let's just end on this thought. Titus... I have no doubt, went to the Corinthian church with skepticism. What young man wouldn't? (laughs) Titus, like, he reads the letter. He's like, you want me to take this letter to that church, and you think there's going to be revival, Paul? Okay. I mean, like, they're literally, there's people sleeping around with each other, and they're turning a blind eye, and you think a letter is going to change something? Whatever. I mean, that's, that's just how young men are, right? So this young man takes the letter, which I'm pretty confident didn't think would work. The letter is given to the pastors of the church. It is read before the church, and Titus is in shock and awe as people start falling to their knees in in prayer and repentance, tears flowing from their face. And part of him probably wants to believe it's real, and part of him probably believes, are they, like, just messing right now? Is this serious? 
I, I'm, I'm confident that Titus stuck around for a while and saw they were serious. And here's how I know. Because he brings a report back. He would have had to see the end result to bring back the report. So probably over the next days, possibly weeks, maybe months, Titus is like, let's see where they really go with this. And then he sees the church dealing with the young man, dealing with the woman. He sees how they deal with them. He sees the change of worship. He sees the sincerity of worship. He sees the true godly repentance. And he comes back to Paul and says, I can't believe what I just saw. I didn't think it was possible. And I got to tell you, Paul, I didn't really love those guys before. I really love these guys now. Like, these guys are in my heart now. Like, I thought very little of them, couldn't trust them as far as I could throw them. I have an abundance of connection with these guys now. That is the result of godly repentance. A renewed relationship refreshed with your spouse is just one repentant prayer away. Yes, there will be hard work after that. Yes, you have got to show that it's godly repentance and make the effort to change towards God, not to change towards change. But the prayer is the step. The repentance is the step in that direction. You will get their attention. They will watch. And then what they see is up to you. What will they see? If they see that you're real, you will regain their trust, and you will increase their love for you. Turning from sin. Sin hurts you, and it hurts those you love the most. Repentance helps you, and it helps those you love the most. Are you tired of hurting the people you love the most? Are you tired of only bringing pain into their life? Bring the joy that Titus experienced. (laughs) Bring the abundance of love that Titus experienced into their life through repentance. Clearness of soul. I would just want to be clean from my sin. An indignation and hatred towards sin. Carefulness. Considering what is my sin doing to the people in my life. It can be different than this.